One of the conversations that Emily and I really enjoy having that we have quite often centers around teaching, how to teach something in a class, because both of us do and have done a lot of teaching. One of my favorite techniques in teaching is what is called a case study. A case study is a situation where you've got some general principle that you've learned about or you've studied or maybe some theory, and you take that theory and you describe a situation, a scenario, and then you work on applying that theory to the scenario, and you follow that up with some sort of a reflection on what did we learn, how did this apply. So when I taught uh, education courses at the university, we would do case studies all the time around classroom scenarios. Now you have a student who has come in and they're upset over, you name it, how are you going to interact with this student? Emily does this all the time in audiology where she develops out these case studies with patients. You have a patient that's come in, they presented this case history to you, and they're complaining about this problem. How are you going to arrive at a diagnosis? It's the case study. It's a powerful tool. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to look at a case study. Before we get there, we're going to do our memory verse, because our memory verse sort of is giving us the broad principle and then we're going to dig into this case study in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So our memory verse of the month is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Will you say it with me? 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. The Apostle Paul was really pushing in this part of 1 Corinthians that people are to live first and foremost as believers, as Christ followers. That's the emphasis that Paul is placing. So now let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And will you read along with me as I read? We'll read through the whole chapter. Paul writes, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing as long as it is in the world. Sorry, let me rephrase that. An idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you and with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? 
So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So here's our case study. Here's the situation that we're in. Let me sort of set up by giving you some idea of the background and laying that out. If I told you that last night I had a really good meal, you might wonder, well, where did he eat? It'd be a fair question. You might want to get a recommendation from me. And there's really a couple of options, right? Maybe we stayed home and prepared a really good meal using food that we had bought at the grocery store. That's one option. Maybe we were over at a friend's house or other residence and we ate food that they had prepared after having bought it from the grocery store. There's another option. Perhaps we ordered takeout and ate it at home or at a friend's house. Or in the case of last night, actually, we ate it at the church. But that's an option. Maybe we went out to a restaurant and had a meal out at a restaurant. That's another option. Lots of options if I tell you I had a really good meal. Same thing's going on here. In the city of Corinth, there were some dining options, some ways that you could eat food. You might go to the market and purchase food, bring it home and eat it. You might go to the market, purchase food, take it somewhere to somebody else's house and eat it. Or you might go out to eat. Now, going out to eat in the city of Corinth was a little bit different than what we think of when we go out to eat. You see, going out to eat involved oftentimes not going to a restaurant, but going to one of the pagan temples and eating the meat that had been left over from a sacrifice. So here's something that's really interesting. If you go to a pagan temple and visit a pagan temple you will see that they have sacrificed food to their so-called God. A few years ago, probably five or so years ago, Emily and I, uh, Emily had a work trip to teach a class in Trinidad and Tobago. And so I went along with her because I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity. And Trinidad and Tobago is a predominantly Hindu religion in that country. And so there are Hindu temples all over the area. So... Emily was out teaching class, and you all know me. I wasn't going to just sit in a hotel room. So I went exploring. And uh, actually, the company that Emily was teaching for wouldn't let me go by myself because they said that's not safe. And I said, well, I'm still going. And they said, fine. And they gave me a driver because they did not want me to go by myself. And he took me to a bunch of different Hindu temples. And here was the really interesting thing. At every Hindu temple, there'd be a statue and there would be just what I thought of looked like a buffet of food sitting at the, at the statue. And here's the really thing. Since the beginning of time when people have put food before statues, guess what? The statue has never consumed the food. <laughs> Go figure. So there's all this food left over. Same thing's happening in the city of Corinth when they would make their sacrifices, there'd be food left over. So you could go eat it at the temple. 
there was enough food left over that oftentimes you could actually go to the market and you could buy the discounted meat because it had just been offered to the God. And guess what? The God didn't eat it. So we'll sell it at the market and make a little bit of a profit. And so in Corinth, there is this situation where there's a really convenient way to go out to eat. There's a really convenient way to buy cheap groceries. You can buy cheap groceries from food that had been offered to the idols. You can go out to eat at the pagan temple and enjoy the food that had been offered to the idols at a huge discount. It's a good way to be frugal. That's the situation that the church in Corinth found themselves sitting in. There's this food available. And so they write a letter to the Apostle Paul and they ask a really simple question. I'm a frugal guy. This question would make a lot of sense to me. I know that this food was offered to an idol, but I know that that idol is meaningless. It means nothing. So how about I save a few bucks and I eat that food that was offered to the idol? It's still good food. And that's the question that's asked of the Apostle Paul. Remember the whole purpose in Corinthians, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is that there are factions of people battling against each other, thinking, I'm more spiritual than this group. And it appears that there is the eat-whatever-you-want-to-eat faction. The group that says, we know that the idol is nothing, so we're going to eat good. Is that all right with you, Paul? And that's the case study we're in. So in verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul sets out the theoretical foundation, the principle. The principle is that love and knowledge often stand in opposition to each other. Love and knowledge often stand in opposition to each other. Now, you might look at that and think, no, love and hate are in opposition to each other. Knowledge and ignorance are in opposition to each other. Semantically, you're right. But in reality, in practice, it's not love and hate that we often have in conflict in a church. It's not knowledge and ignorance that sit in conflict. It's knowledge and love that often are in opposition to each other. Paul begins off by explaining why this is the case. In verses 1 through 3, he really tells us that knowledge is a dangerous thing. Because knowledge can lead you to focus on yourself. Think about that for just a second. Think about knowledge. Where does knowledge reside? Where does knowledge focus? Oftentimes, knowledge causes us to focus on ourselves. And the Apostle Paul writes about this. He says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is a dangerous thing because it can lead us to believe that we have arrived. And that's the situation, I think, going on in Corinth. They have come to this point where we know better than idolatry. That is way below us. Knowledge is dangerous because it can lead us to believe that we have arrived. I have my own sort of translation of verse 2. So the NIV is a great translation of this. It says, those who think that they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. My, my version of that 
Some of you think you're so smart, but if you're half as smart as you think, you would realize that you are magnitudes less intelligence than you believe. <laughs> That's actually what Paul is saying. You think you're so smart, but if you are half as smart as you thought you were, you'd realize just how little you know. This is the reality of knowledge. Anyone who has legitimately pursued knowledge discovers something. The more you learn, the less you know. Because the more you learn, the bigger the horizon gets. And as that horizon gets bigger, you realize that, wow, I know nothing. When I first started learning math, I thought, you know, I think I, I've got a solid like 10% of the mathematical knowledge that I've, I've stored away now. I, I'm probably at 10%. And then I studied for another year, and I was down to 1%. By the time I had uh, finished grad school, I honestly think that I know like less than a tenth of a percent of the math out there. The more I learned, the less I knew. Knowledge is dangerous, though, because if you don't take it with that approach, you can begin to believe that you've arrived. Instead, love should be the priority because love is considerate and it seeks to build others up. Real quick, turn in your Bibles to 1 John 4. John writes extensively, extensively about love, both in the gospel and in his epistles. But 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, to me, show us just how much of a priority love must be. It says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Love is our priority because love is considerate and love builds up. Love comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 3, it says that whoever loves God is known by God. In verse 1, it says knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Love has come up in chapter 8. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we're actually going to define love. But we're not there yet. What Paul wants us to see is this principle Love and knowledge often stand in opposition to each other. And we must be careful that we prioritize love. So I have an action step out of these first three verses for you. Evaluate your use of knowledge. Does it stand in opposition to love? How are you using the knowledge that you have? Everyone here has knowledge. Remember that later today when you're at the dinner table. Everyone here has knowledge. But are you using it in a way that is building up in love or are you using your knowledge in a way that is in opposition to love? We're going to now take this and put it in our specific case. So our case study begins. Here's our case study. Without careful consideration... Knowledge can cause significant damage to a brother or sister in Christ. That's the case study that we're dealing with. Specifically, the Apostle Paul takes 
our principle that knowledge and love stand in opposition to each other, and he applies it to eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul begins in verse 4, probably quoting the Corinthians. He says, an idol is nothing at all in the world. They probably wrote him that in a letter. Paul, you know, an idol is nothing at all in the world, so we can eat this food that's been sacrificed. We all know this. We all know that idols are meaningless. So that's the knowledge that they have. An idol is nothing. True. True statement. That's accurate. If you go look at an idol, that idol has no power. That idol is not God. That idol is nowhere close to God. Isaiah talks about the the actual stupidity of worshiping an idol. He says, you chop down a tree. You cut it up. Part of it, you form into this idol. The other part, you burn. And you think that's worth something. We know that an idol is nothing. That's accurate knowledge. But... What Paul is going to say is that knowledge isn't the focus. Your love should be your focus. Just knowing the idol is nothing, applying the knowledge, is nothing. Where we need to focus is on the love. If you read between the lines in this text, you get the idea that there's some arrogance going on by these people who have this knowledge. It's almost like they're mocking those who maybe don't have the knowledge or who maybe aren't quite convinced, maybe are bothered by the idolatry. They're they're sort of puffing themselves up and saying, you all are questioning us, but that's just because you haven't arrived yet. Because you don't know this basic fundamental fact that that idol is nothing. And Paul comes down pretty hard. As an aside, real quick aside. In chapter 10, Paul's going to tell us one other piece of really powerful information. He's going to tell us that sometimes those idols, while they are nothing, have demonic forces standing behind them. And so when you offer those sacrifices to those nothing idols, you're actually sacrificing to demons. So Paul's going to deal with that later in chapter 10. For now, though, the point is, yeah, it's nothing. But you are playing with fire. I like to play with fire. (laughs) I know how fire works. You have a chemical reaction whereby you have oxygen binding and creating a new chemical that we often call smoke. And that chemical reaction generates heat. They were playing with fire here. They knew the idol was nothing. But worse than just playing with fire, they were subjecting other people too. By the way, I've taught kids how to play with fire. It's never good. Parents don't appreciate it. (laughs) There's a reality though. Not everyone fully understands that an idol is nothing. The Apostle Paul says, yes, you've got this knowledge. You know that the idol is nothing, but not everybody knows that. It sounds familiar. Emily will tell me, yeah, you know how to be safe with fire, but does Edison? No. No. (laughs) 
Paul says, not everyone fully understands that that idol is nothing. And you are leading them down a path that will not end well for them. Not everyone knows. The NIV in verse 7, we've got this, this statement here. says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god since their conscience is weak. The word there for conscience um, is probably not the best translation there. Uh, if you look at, like, historically, how the notion of conscience, the way we think of conscience, Jiminy Cricket, right? That actually wasn't present yet in Greek society. They, they didn't think of it that way yet. The way they thought of the word conscience was, uh, actually, self-awareness. So we could rethink of it in this way. We, um, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their self-awareness or self-realization is weak, they follow along with you. In other words, they submit to peer pressure. They don't know any better. They're not aware of the forces that are acting on them mentally, and they submit to their peer pressure that you've inflicted on them because of your knowledge. They give in to peer pressure. It's not that they're morally weak individuals. Not that Jiminy Cricket isn't speaking loud enough to them. That's not the problem. The problem is that they give in to peer pressure because everyone that they look up to is doing it. And Paul goes on, he says, not only are you causing these people to give in to peer pressure, but you're doing it for something that's absolutely silly. That's his point in verse 8. The real knowledge that the Corinthians should have realized was that food itself doesn't change your relationship with God. So you're insisting on eating this food that has no spiritual meaning to it at the risk of your brothers and sisters in Christ leading them astray for something that has no spiritual significance. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. The knowledge that the Corinthians needed to focus on was the knowledge that what they should care about is the spiritual. The reality was that your knowledge applied without consideration for another can cause them to stumble. This is where the rubber meets the road. Our actions as believers, the way we use our knowledge can lead people to stumble. The way we exercise our rights can lead people down the wrong path. So knowledge often stands in opposition to love. Because with our knowledge, if we're not careful, we can lead people astray. Love, on the other hand, is considerate and seeks to build up. So, that's the case that we're in. The case study was food offered to idols. So, let's make an action step out of this. The action step is to take this case, take this case study, 
and look at other aspects of life through this lens. If you want to go find an idol that has had meat sacrificed to it, I'm sure they exist in Lincoln, but you're going to, have to, str- you're going to struggle to find it. It's going to take some work. We don't deal with this on a regular basis. But we deal with all sorts of other items where we have knowledge. The question is, are we applying love? So that's what we're going to do. We started with our general principle. We dove into our specific case. And now we're going to reflect back. We're going to debrief our case study. And the point of our debrief is that knowledge must take a backseat to love. Knowledge takes the backseat to love. Here's a reality. Verse 10. If I summarize that, I would say this. In general, we follow the lead of those who we look up to. In general, we follow the lead of those we look up to. Parents know this guess what? Your kids will act the way you act. It's inevitable. And most of the parents I know take this very seriously. They say, I want to act in a way that my kids will grow up to live a godly life. I want to show my kids what it looks like to live as a Christ follower. The comic Spider-Man, I think, really, uh, not necessarily coined, but brought to popularity the phrase that with great power comes great responsibility. It's true. That's a good summary, actually, of verse 10. With great power comes great responsibility. People will tend to follow the person they look up to, but it goes beyond just parents. It goes for adults with other adults. It goes for anybody who is being looked up to by anybody else, whether that's your own kids, whether that's someone else's kids, whether that's some other adult looking up to you, whether that's a teenager looking up to you, whether that's a fellow teenager looking up to another teenager. People tend to follow those to whom they look up. The principle is really simple. Others are watching, and they will imitate. So knowledge has to take a backseat to love. Because they might not have the knowledge you have yet. It doesn't mean they're not going to imitate you. The situation in Corinth was really bad. Paul says in verse 10, for someone with a weak conscience, remember that's probably more like self-awareness, sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, And this word for eating is not the standard word that we would translate as eating. It's actually a word that means reclining and relaxing and eating. It's the idea of making yourself at home, of getting the maximum enjoyment. It's not simply that you've consumed food. It's that you have thoroughly enjoyed this meal. If they see you thoroughly enjoying the meal in the idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Won't they succumb to peer pressure, the situation is bad. These individuals with a weak self-awareness cave in to fit in. And what Paul says 
next is huge. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Wow. Wow. Destroyed by your knowledge. You see, to lead a brother or sister into sin is actually to directly sin against Christ yourself. Because the person for whom Christ died, Christ's death paid the penalty for sin, but not just paying the penalty for sin, but buying victory over sin. In his resurrection, he proved victory over sin. And when we lead somebody else down a path that leads them to sin, that goes against Christ's very death. Because Christ purchased victory from that. Ultimately, there's a reality here. It's a reality that we don't like to talk about because people can take it the wrong way. So we should talk about it since we don't like to. What may be acceptable for one individual is sin for another. That is a reality. We don't like to talk about that because we feel like, well, now we're talking about relativism. We're talking about make your own truth. That's not what this is saying. There are things that are wrong. The Bible talks about adultery. It says it's wrong. The Bible talks about murder. It says it's wrong. The Bible talks about gossip. It says it's wrong. By the way, did you notice that we're putting those three in the same category? We should. Okay. But there are also things that the Bible doesn't talk about that might be okay for you and completely wrong for someone else. And the principle that we must employ is love. You may be able to watch a PG-13 movie and not sin, and it might be completely sinful for someone else. And I'm not just talking about kids. You may be able to get on Facebook and post this morning, and it might be sinful for somebody else because they're dealing with an addiction to social media. We could name any other number of scenarios. So the principle must be love. And what I see at the end in verse 13 is that love may require that you take a hyperbolic response. Hyperbolic means overemphasizing, going well above and beyond what is reasonable. I'm going to give an example. We grew up, and growing up, my brothers and I, we were not allowed to go to the movies. There's a real one basic reason my mom did not allow us to go to the movies. When she was in high school, she went to a movie. One of her high school friends was also at that movie. And as she walked out of the movie, her high school friend looked at her and said, I thought you were a Christian. I can't believe you're here. From that moment on, my mom never went to another movie. And as long as we lived in the house, you don't go to a movie. Why? Because love might require a hyperbolic response. It's not worth leading someone else into sin. That's what we're looking for here. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Your rights, that's wonderful. Your knowledge is amazing. But never let it lead somebody else to sin. 
So let me ask you a question, an action step, if you will. I want you to ask yourself, is there something that I'm holding on to that may be causing another to stumble? Is there something I'm doing that might cause another to succumb to the peer pressure? And for them, it would be sin. That's the question. That's the self-searching that we need to do. Because, again, knowledge must take a backseat to love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. It's an incredibly challenging book. Not because the text itself is necessarily hard, but because what the text demands is hard. You've called us to love. You've called us to break down walls of factionalism, to embrace each other in love. I pray that as a church, we would love first. Not the love of the world that has all sorts of problems, but the love of Christ that lays down one's rights for the other. That our love would be reflective of the Savior who gave his life that we might have life. Father, I pray that that would be the sort of love that we show. And if there are areas of life where we need to lay them down, where we need to sacrifice our rights, that others might grow, that others might be edified, that others might be built up, I pray that we would make that commitment to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.